So I titled this message, You're Not the Boss of Me. In a 1999 interview with Barbara Walters, Monica Lewinsky explained that she's always been stubborn. Quote, from the time I was two years old, one of the first phrases, or my first phrases, was, with my hands on my hips, you're not the boss of me. Now that's all I'll say further about Monica Lewinsky, considering the children that we have in the room. But there's, uh, you guys are familiar with this attitude, right? You've seen it. Siblings or maybe a sitter, if you've actually ever sit kids, and they respond to you when you tell them to do something. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. In fact, in, in our culture, it's rather frightening. I, when I was a kid growing up, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, if you were an adult, whether I knew you or not, and you told me, move to the other side of the street, that's what I did. Now try that. Right? They'll either say, you're not the boss of me. Who do you think you are? You can't tell me what to do. I'll get a lawyer and sue you. Or I'll get my dad. He has a big gun and we'll shoot you. You know, This is the attitude of our society. Just resistant and rebellious against any authority. Unwilling to recognize proper authority in life. Well, this morning, that's... That's all I could think about, that particular phrase. You're not the boss of me. It's all I could think about when I read this text. And hopefully you'll see that too as we move through Mark's Gospel here. Beginning in chapter 11, we're just going to read the end of chapter 11, and then we'll come back later on in the sermon, and we'll read chapter 12 as well. For right now, chapter 11, verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So this morning we're going to reflect on the foolish behavior of those who are unwilling to submit to divine authority so that we might not imitate their sinful rebellion. If you've been with us before, you know you can look on the inside of that bulletin that you're holding or near you, and on the inside left-hand side of that is an outline that you can follow along. Two points this morning, just two. Two foolish behaviors that we do not want to imitate. Foolish reasoning and foolish rejection. Foolish reasoning and foolish rejection. So... Just by way of reminder, or if you're here with us for the first time, here's a little context for our text this morning. It was Tuesday in Jerusalem, only days before Friday, the day that Jesus would be crucified. Jesus entered the temple, if you remember, on Monday. So this is one day after he's entered the temple. And when he entered the temple, he caused a major disturbance in that temple area, in the courtyards. He kicked out, literally kicked out those who were conducting business there. They were buying and selling items that were necessary for the sacrifices. If you remember, he actually overturned the tables of the money changers. And he refused to allow anyone to just casually walk goods and items through the temple area, which was supposed to be a holy and sacred place, but they were using it as a shortcut for the city. So... Jesus says of that area that it had become a den of robbers. That's his description of this holy temple, the house of the living God, a den of robbers. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. The temple was corrupted, beloved, not by accident. Not by accident, but by the approval of the religious leaders of Judaism. That's what makes this so shocking. 
Now, that's really not surprising when we consider the religious leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, because they were hostile towards Jesus for his entire three-and-a-half-year ministry. Why? Because Jesus exposed their sin, their corruption, their hypocrisy, and their rebellious attitude towards God. Every time they encountered Jesus Christ, it didn't go well for them. The religious leaders had moved so far from God that when Jesus, the very Son of God, the Messiah that they had been waiting for, performed great signs and miracles that authenticated His very identity as the great Son of God and the Messiah, instead of that bringing praise, the religious leaders went as far as to accuse Him of using the power of Satan to do the supernatural things he did. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. That's how far these guys had, had gone from God. And when Jesus confronted them about their false teachings and their unbiblical thinking, they became, the text says, determined to destroy him. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You know why? Because no one was going to tell these religious leaders of Israel what to do, or how to think, or certainly how to live. Not even God's beloved Son. No one. In their sinful rebellion, they were acting like foolish children with their hands on their hips, screaming at Jesus, You're not the boss of me. But their rebellious protest no matter how loud or persistent, did not and could not alter the reality of Jesus' divine authority over all of humanity. In our text today that we just read, Jesus has returned to the temple where He had caused so much commotion just the day before. And now He's walking around in the temple... And he's teaching the people. We get that from Luke chapter 20, verse 1, which is another account of the same story. But it was not long, beloved, before the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up to him and demanded to know where he got the right or authorization to be acting like he owned the place. That's what's going on. Who do you think... You are telling people what they can and can't do, overthrowing the money changers' table, forbidding people to walk through the temple. Who gave you such authority? Don't you know we're the authority in here? That's the context. That's what's going on. They want to know, who made you boss, Jesus? Who died and made you king? Hmm. So Mark 11, 28. Looking back at the text, they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? It's worth noting here, in case you don't know, that the they are the three categories of people that we just talked about. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the religious leaders who approach Jesus. And collectively, they formed a group that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. If you've never heard that, that's okay. Let me tell you just a little bit about them. They had great authority over the people. They acted in a sense like a supreme court. And they had the right to make decisions in matters regarding religious, civil, or even criminal matters in regard to the nation of Israel. And their word was final, like a supreme court. These, by the way, are the same people that Jesus identified in Mark chapter 8, 31, when He said, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by, lo and behold, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. In fact, after making a stinging rebuke against these religious leaders in the temple, on Monday... Mark tells us in Mark chapter eleven eighteen that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and he was seeking, or they were seeking a way 
to destroy him. Why do I tell you all that? Well, this encounter with Jesus on Tuesday in Mark eleven twenty seven was not friendly. There was nothing friendly about this. And as the story unfolds, you realize these guys are not interested in, in understanding Jesus or, or understanding His authority, but they're only looking to trap Him in something. See if He will violate their law in some way so that they can arrest this guy and get him out of the temple so that he will stop causing them so much grief. That's what's going on. Now, Jesus knew what they were up to. He knew their intentions were not pure, so guess what? He doesn't answer their question directly. They don't want the answer. You remember that movie, You Can't Handle the Truth, that idea? That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, you guys can't even handle the truth. You don't want the truth. You're just here to trap me. So Jesus presented them with a question of his own. This is where the story gets interesting. He said to them, verse, look back at your text, chapter 11, verse 29. Listen, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it's interesting because Mark, you can leave it up there for a second. Mark pauses. It's like there's a pause here. Answer me. You can almost see that they don't know what to say. They don't even, they're stuck. And Jesus presses them. Answer me. You come up demanding me to answer you. I'll tell you what, answer this question. I'll be happy to give you the answer. Now listen, this is important and this is why Jesus is asking this question. John's ministry, in case you don't know or just by way of reminder, among the people was associated with proclaiming and calling people to undergo what is called a baptism of repentance. That's what John the Baptist was known for. He did a baptism of repentance. And this was a symbol of the people's repentance towards God and an inner desire for them to turn from their sins in order to prepare for the coming Messiah, the King, the Holy One. In other words, they had some matters to get corrected. They need to repent of their sin in preparation for the coming King. Guess what? John later went on to identify Jesus as that Messiah, as that coming King. In fact, he even refers to Jesus as the Son of God directly. John chapter 1, verse 34. So here's what you have. You have an inseparable connection between John's ministry and Jesus' identity. And because of that, this question elevated the significance of Jesus' question to these people and ultimately the consequences of their answer. So let's look at the question again. I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, did John do and say what he did based on the authority from God? That's what it means by from heaven. It's another way of saying from God. Or was his authority human in nature alone? Done only according to John's own initiative. In other words, is this just John? Just deciding to go around and do this? Or has he been sent by God and therefore does he have the authority of God in what he does and what he says? Or another way to put it, was John's authority for his ministry divine or human in origin? Where is it coming from? Or, to put it another way, who was behind John's ministry? Just John or someone way more significant and serious like God? That's the question simple. Now this brings us to the first point in our outline, which is foolish reasoning. Foolish reasoning. Remember, sinful rebellion. You're not the boss of me, Jesus. Watch how this plays out. Mark chapter 11, verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. Now the NASB or the New American Standard Bible says they reasoned 
They reasoned with one another. Same idea. They reasoned. They discussed it. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. That is the people. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What you need to see is they are not interested in seeking, determining, or giving the correct or true answer, beloved. They don't care about the truth. They don't want the truth. They are only interested in making sure that their position in life is not compromised or challenged in any way. And they don't want to have to do the absolute unthinkable, which is submit to Christ's authority. They do not want to do that. So here's the logic. Here's what they're, they're thinking in their heads. If they answer from heaven, meaning from God, then they are openly admitting that John acted and spoke on behalf of God. That would immediately reveal their disobedience to God since they were unwilling to believe John's testimony about Jesus. That is, He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, and consequently, if all those things are true, He absolutely has divine authority. I would add, He had the authority that gave Him every right to do what He did in the temple the day before. After all, it is His Father's house. So see, there'd be no reason to ask, where did you get the authority to do these things? Who gave you the right to come in here and turn it topsy-turvy? Who gave you the right to be telling people what to do? See, they're in a dilemma. They're caught. Now, maybe instead of that, we'll say that John's authority was just of himself. It was just of men. Okay? But the problem was the people really believed that John was a prophet. So now if they say, hey, he wasn't from God, he's just doing his own thing, he's just making this stuff up as he goes, then they lose their credibility with the people and potentially the authority that they exercise over them. These guys are stuck. Jesus is a master debater. In fact, Luke chapter 20, verse 6 says, but if we say, same story, from men, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So what are you guys going to do? Say it's from God and then have to bow in humility and submission before the Christ, who you have continued to challenge every step of His way, who you continue to stand up against, who you continue to try to destroy? Or will you say from men and face the stones of the crowd? No, we'll do neither. The answer they give is we do not know, which really meant we don't want to answer. We don't want to answer because we are unwilling to accept the consequences of our answer either way. The whole scene, beloved, when you read this, is really just pathetic and sad. And it is pathetic and sad because if the religious leaders, as the answer suggests, can't tell the difference between what is from God and what is not from God, then why are they religious leaders at all? The whole thing is just a mess. But guess what? It was not ignorance that left them speechless in giving this ridiculous answer and looking like fools. Rather, it was their stubborn refusal to come under Jesus and His divine authority. That's what's going on. See, doing that would mean that they would have to acknowledge before the crowds and before Christ their sins. They would have to confess them and they would have to accept Jesus' correction and instruction. But you know what? They weren't about to do that. You're not the boss of me. They were in the habit of telling people what to do. 
They liked it that way. And they weren't about to have somebody else come in and tell them what to do. One writer says this, The whole story is a vivid example to what happens to men who will not face the truth. Their trouble lay not in their dullness of mind, but in their stubborn will. That was their problem. This was not an intellectual problem, beloved. They didn't need more information. This was a moral problem that came from the heart. One writer says, their difficulty was how to answer so as neither to shake their determination to reject the claims of Christ nor damage their reputation with the people. But they cared nothing for the truth. Another writer says, if they answer that John's baptism was from heaven, they presume that Jesus will criticize them for not believing. And so he rightfully would. But this option reveals they do not care if someone is commissioned by heaven or not. They will do as they please and ignore him. Beloved, that sounds all too familiar. All too familiar. Do as they please and ignore Jesus Christ. An inherited sinful nature has made all of humanity rebels at heart. Even from a very young age, you can see in a small child a certain unwillingness to submit to authority. Amen. Woo! There's a mom right there. That was a mom. That was a real amen, sincere, right? There is a certain unwillingness. And as they grow, guess what? So does their desire for autonomy and self-rule. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss. I'm eight. I'm 18. But Jesus comes along and He says, Surrender to me. Surrender. I am the Lord. Submit yourself to me. And my loving rule over your life. But the unrepentant rebel says, Who do you think you are? You can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. And here's the most foolish part of this whole thing. That rebel then takes the very brains that God gave them, that God created them with, and they use those brains to reason their way, they think, out from under the authority of Jesus Christ. I was watching a debate between an atheist and a Christian. Now the debate goes something like this. At least this is what they added to the debate. You know, an atheist is someone who says, I do not believe there is a God. I do not believe in supernatural, period. So when the question came up about the historicity of Jesus Christ, the man, now the atheist just says, I don't even believe that Jesus ever lived. You don't believe Jesus ever lived. The documentation historically for the presence of a real man named Jesus Christ that did miraculous things among the people and the claim is that He was resurrected on the third day. The evidence is overwhelming. But you don't believe Jesus ever lived. Of course! That makes it easier for you to not have to come under Him. If I just get rid of Him altogether from history, of course I don't have to submit to Him. He never even lived. You believe in George Washington? Okay. I don't even know what to say now. 
Well, George Washington lived. We believe that, right? No problem. You don't ever want to see anybody going along going, you know what, I don't know. I know the history books say George Washington lived, but I'm not so sure. I'm thinking it was a big conspiracy. All made up to control people. Of course they're not going to say that. George Washington makes no claims on your life. He doesn't say, surrender to me. I am Lord. Give up your sinful rebellion and follow me. It is the only right thing to do. Stop using your mind to fight against me, but use it to meditate upon me, to worship me, to follow me. The agnostic's not much better. The agnostic just says, listen, there's probably a God, and I believe there's a God, I just don't know who it is. Of course you do. Of course you don't know who it is. That's so easy. Because that type of God makes no claims on your life. That is the issue, beloved. It is inherent rebellion that fights against the Lord of the universe who has every right to tell you and me what to do. Because He created us. The truth is people can stand and scream and proclaim that they do not have to answer to Jesus Christ and try their best through their foolish reasoning to avoid His authority. But ultimately, beloved, it is inescapable. It is inescapable. And that brings us to the second point found in Jesus' parable beginning in Mark chapter 12. Foolish rejection. Look at the text with me. Back to the Bible, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Now remember, this is following this situation with the temple authorities, back and forth, questions about authority. Now he tells this parable. So now you get the context. He says, he began to speak to them, the religious authorities. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat And some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In the coming weeks, as we continue to look at the text here in Mark, you're going to find out they go away only for a few moments to work out plans on how to mess Jesus up. And they send other people back with these questions in order to trap him. That's what we'll look at in a couple of weeks or in the next couple of weeks. Jesus here tells a story, a parable, in order to communicate a very important message to the religious leaders that they really needed to hear. Now, the backdrop of this story included several things. A vineyard, tenants, payment arrangements made by the owner. All of these things were very familiar concepts to the audience that Jesus was talking to, but may be foreign to us. It might might be. So I want to take just a moment to explain some of the details. 
a wealthy landowner, someone who owns multiple properties, might plant a farm on one of his properties. In this case, a vineyard. Grapes. Make wine. Okay? Out of grapes. That's why there's a pit for a wine press. That's why there's a pit in the middle of this vineyard. They would pour all the grapes into this hole. On the other side, there would be a funnel, and then the people would stand in there and crush the grapes to create wine. But it was not the intention of the owner to farm the crop himself. He didn't have time to do all that. So instead, he would lease the farm to tenants or renters. Okay? He would lease it to them, and they would take on all the responsibility of managing the farm or the crop, and they would benefit from the profits associated with that crop. Okay, so how does the owner get paid? Well, the payment arrangement was for using the land is that the tenants would give a portion of the harvested crop to the owner. That's simple. So in this case, it could have been grapes, it could have been raisins, it could have been even the finished product, wine. That's how they would make payment to the landowner. Now, when Jesus is telling the story, they all would have been like, "Uh uh-huh, right, we know, yeah, get that? We see that every day. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing extraordinary about that. What is shocking about the story are the facts regarding the owner trying to collect payment for what is rightfully his from these tenants who are living on his land and managing his farm. And their violent and repeated rejection is what's so shocking. That's where the people listening would have been floored. Listen, they beat the first servant. So he just simply, here's the landowner, he's away, He sends his servant to come and get some payment. What do you expect? Give him some grapes. Give him a few bottles of wine. They beat him. So, the owner sends another servant. They smash him in the head. Treat him with disrespect. Shame him. This is strange. So, the owner sends a third servant. They just kill him. And then the text says, and he continued to send servants. Some they beat, some they killed. Now, before we go further, this might be helpful. Based in part on the very similar language that exists about this vineyard in Mark chapter 12 and in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Very similar. Very same, very close to the same description about a vineyard and a wine press. There in Isaiah, the vineyard is clearly identified as God's vineyard. It's His. He is the owner. And the vineyard itself in that text in Isaiah is called the house of Israel or the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7. So when we're reading this text, Bible scholars understand that the owner of the vineyard in the parable in Mark, represents God. And the vineyard itself represents Israel. There are other passages in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as a vineyard. Alright, what about the tenants? Who are these miserable tenants? Well, the only people that are portrayed poorly or badly in this story are the tenants. And when Jesus finished telling the story... The text in Mark tells us that the religious leaders understood that he spoke the parable against them. And they weren't happy about it. They were angry about it, wanting to arrest Jesus. So it's clear that the tenants are the religious leaders represented throughout Israel's history. Okay, what about the owner's servants that the owner sent to the tenants? who were beaten and killed and treated poorly. Well, beloved, if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, then you know that God continued to send prophets to His rebellious people, pleading with them to turn from their wicked, rebellious ways and back to God. 
But the prophets were often rejected, mistreated, abused, beaten, and yes, even killed. In fact, on the same day in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said these words. It's recorded in Matthew 23:37. He said, in the same day being Tuesday of this last week of Jesus' life, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You refused. I sent prophet after prophet, and what do you do? Respond in repentance? Come under the authority of God? No. Kill them. Shut them up. I don't want to hear for another second that I have to come under someone else's authority. You're not the boss of me! So let's summarize. The owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants who are to care for God's vineyard, Israel, are the religious leaders of the nation. The servants are the prophets sent by God and rejected by the tenants. But then the story becomes outrageous. After the owner tolerates the continual rejection of his servants, he sent his beloved son, saying, they will respect my son. Verse 6. Logically, beloved, this refers to Jesus Christ. What is outrageous is the tenants don't care that it is the son of the owner. That has no impact on them. It should have meant something. This is the very son of the owner now coming to us to collect payment, coming to make right what has been wrong. But instead, they foolishly and rebelliously see this as an opportunity to seize control of the land by killing off the heir. And they murder him. Now, We could spend more time on this parable, but I want to point out this morning the absolute foolishness of the rejection on the part of the tenants. Is it reasonable to think that they could ultimately get away with what they were doing? Is it reasonable? Do you think that you can continue to spur, stand against the owner of this property? You think you can mistreat his servants, beat them, smash them in the head, kill them, and then when he sends his very son, you kill him and toss him out of his vineyard? You think you're going to get away with that? You can sit there all day and scream, you're not the boss of me. Fools. Fools. The owner is eventually going to deal with these rebels. He may have shown incredible patience, and he did. But it is a mistake, beloved, to confuse patience with weakness. That is a mistake. So look at Mark 12, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? In fact, in Matthew's account of this, the group responds first. And they say, He will come and He will deal with those wretched tenants. He will kill them. He'll throw them out. Jesus affirms, Yeah, He will come and destroy the tenants and He will give the vineyard to others. They might think that they do not have to answer to the owner for their rebellious actions and their repeated violent rejection. But guess what, beloved? In the end, they will. Jesus is still driving home His point. So he now, He's told them a story. A story that basically, they, everything was fine, but now the story has been turned on them. They're feeling the weight of that, but now He challenges these religious leaders with what they're supposed to know best. Scripture. The Word of God. So He says, in a sense mockingly, have you not read the Scripture? 
Mark chapter 12, verse 10 through 11. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Beloved, he is quoting Psalm 118, 22 through 23. This was a passage they all knew well. The entire nation of Israel knew this passage. In fact, when Jesus entered Jerusalem and they were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. Those are quotes from Psalm 118. They knew this passage. But Jesus isn't asking if they knew it. He's asking, you don't understand it. You don't get it, do you? You religious leaders, you have no idea. So again, focused on rejection, this time Jesus uses the image of a particular stone that has been rejected by the builders. What is interesting about this stone, beloved, is even though the builders rejected it, according to the text, it ends up being used as the cornerstone. What's that mean? Well, this is all you need to know to understand what Jesus is saying. The cornerstone was the most important stone to build the building. It was the most important stone. You can't build the building without a perfect cornerstone. The builders rejected it. They rejected the very stone that they needed to build the building and it eventually became the cornerstone. This is again foolish rejection. Jesus is using the imagery here to picture Himself as the stone that was being rejected historically at that moment, but would end up becoming the cornerstone for God's building, His holy temple, the church. Write this down. Ephesians chapter 2, read verses 11 through 12 for a reference later on. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. But also, I'm going to take you here. Sometime after Jesus had died, resurrected now, and ascended to His Father, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is stuck again defending himself just like Jesus before the religious leaders for what he was doing in Jesus' name. In this case, he had healed a man. And he says that the stone that was rejected is Jesus. Let's look at the text. Acts chapter 4. If you want to turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. A few books to the right. Acts chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Sound familiar? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, in case you forgot, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Here it is, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, beloved, how foolish is it for a builder to reject the very stone that is the most important stone In constructing the building. How foolish is it, Wes? Huh? You'd fire that contractor. Are you an idiot? You just threw out the piece you need. That's what Jesus is saying. You guys are rejecting the very thing you absolutely need. I am the cornerstone. Likewise, beloved, how foolish can someone be in rejecting the one person who is the most important individual anyone could ever have in their lives? How foolish do you have to be? It's idiotic. It's insane. 
It's sinful rebellion. That's what it is. But that is the deception of sinful rebellion, beloved. That is its deception. It tells you. Listen to the lie. It tells you that you are somehow better off by resisting Christ's authority over your life than humbly submitting to His rule. That's what it tells you. Well, beloved, I know that you are not religious leaders in this context, right? Yeah, you're not religious leaders. You're not the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. So what, how do, what does this have to do with me? Beloved, do we not practice foolish reasoning when we attempt to get out from under the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives? In fact, people become the most sophisticated. They pull from every brain cell in order to come up with reasons why they don't have to obey. Foolish reasoning. And some of you here would say, listen, I've accepted Jesus. This has nothing to do with me. These, these guys were rejecting Him. Okay. Have you? Let's, let's ask that question. Have you? Because to accept Him means to accept His divine authority over every area of your life. That's what it means. It's not just to say, hey, yeah, I know He lived, died on a cross for sins. Sure, my sins. No. Son of God, Messiah, Lord, Master, Creator, accepting Him is accepting His titles, which means you absolutely accept His identity, which means you can't but help accept His divine authority. And I am afraid that in the visible church today, meaning all those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, having accepted Him, quote, they have done it on their terms. So this is what they say. Jesus, you can save me. I'll let you do that. But you cannot be the boss of me. You are not the boss of me. You know what, Jesus? I'll give you my foul language. I'll let you have control over that. Don't you dare get into any other area of my life. Don't tell me how to run my marriage. Don't tell me how to be an employee or an employer. Don't tell me how to love my spouse. Don't tell me how to treat people. You're not the boss of me. Foolish rejection. Just doesn't work that way, beloved. It doesn't work that way. So my prayer is that we will abandon any such foolish behavior and surrender to Jesus as we ought to. Because resistance is such an incredible waste of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we who are truly saved, who have recognized Jesus Christ and have placed our faith in Him as our Lord and Savior and understand that it is in Him and Him alone that we might have salvation. Father, You know, and we must confess that the remnants of our sinful, rebellious nature are still there. Father, we are being changed into Your image day by day and moment by moment. And for that, we give great praise to You and we celebrate that work of Your Spirit in our lives. But if we are honest... There is still a mad devil of rebellion that rages through our bloodstream. Father, would you do business with us even now? 
would we stop using the very minds that you gave us to try to weasel our way out of subjection to our Lord and Savior who laid down His life for us? Would we stop challenging the authority of God's Word, stop questioning it, and simply come under it as an obedient, humble child? Father, help us to stop throwing tantrums and, and, and screaming out and crying out in our own ways that You're not the boss of us. And no, Father, we wouldn't dare say that openly and in front of people. Our lives express that very reality when we refuse to do what You've simply asked us to do. And, and I said it earlier, it's the loving rule of Jesus Christ that we're submitting to, not some tyrant. This is someone who loves us and wants the best for us. And we're so stupid, we reject it. God, help us not to be fools. Father, I also pray for those who have never received Jesus Christ and still stand in opposition to Him in their own way. Father, for them, the Word says this, that Your wrath abides on them. That if they died even now, they would suffer Your wrath for eternity. Father, help them see the light. Help them come to their senses whether they be in this room or they be in our families or they be next door to us in our houses or they be sitting in the pew next to us at our work, Father, help them come to their senses that they would not be fools any longer, insane, but bring them sanity. Help them to turn from their sinful rebellion and place themselves under Your loving authority, your sovereign rule as they give themselves to Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to accept Him. Father, we ask all these things that we would be changed because we know that if we are changed into the image of Your Son, man, man, things would be a lot different. But we believe the lie. We believe the lie that rebellion is better. Father, help us to see it for what it is. A filthy, rotten, disgusting lie straight from the pits of hell spoken by the devil himself to our first parents. Do Your work in us, through us, among us that You might be lifted up and glorified. We pray all this in our Savior's name, our Lord's name our King and Master's name, Jesus Christ, amen.